Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. We love to explain quantum physics and the mysteries of the universe, but the mysteries of finance, not so much. Intuit helps you demystify your finances through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Understanding standard deductions or interest rates can be very complicated and tricky with big potential consequences. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Hey Kelly, are you a lottery ticket purchaser? Uh, no, as a person who thinks a lot about statistics and probability, I am not a lottery ticket purchaser. <laughs> well, you just got to bet on the high variance events. But let's say that you win a billion dollars someday. What are you going to do with your windfall? Have you thought about that? Oh, my gosh. Well, I'd like to think that I'd like work on the world hunger problem. So maybe I'd do something like that. But also I would make a really awesome lab for myself, probably. Probably put it into science. What would you do? I might start my own university where students can go for free and faculty don't have to apply for grants. Whoa. And then I encourage them to hire me because this university you're talking about sounds fantastic and I would like to work there. <laughs> what I definitely wouldn't do is spend any of that money sending myself to space. Really? You don't want to go to space? I have zero interest in going to space. How much money would you spend on a ticket to space, Kelly? I wouldn't. No, we're on the same page. <laughs> but I, it still seems way too dangerous right now for my taste. Let's just stay here on Earth and spend our billion dollars on science. Yeah, that sounds great. physicist and a professor at UC Irvine, and I am terrified of fast-moving vehicles. <laughs> I'm Kelly Wiener-Smith, and I'm a parasitologist with Rice University, and I am also sort of petrified of fast-moving vehicles, but also maybe in particular fast-moving vehicles that have a high probability of exploding. <laughs> 
I recently tested my faith in science and engineering because I took a helicopter flight for the first time last week. Whoa! How did you get that opportunity? My daughter and I went on a road trip around the West Coast and we took a chopper ride through the Grand Canyon, which was pretty spectacular. That does sound awesome. But are you saying you were scared or was it moving slow enough that it wasn't scary? I was terrified. There's so much angular momentum in that thing. You know, some little thing goes wrong. It just pulls itself apart. And my daughter was scared. She thought, is this thing really safe? And I know the numbers. I know the statistics. It's much safer to get in the helicopter than it was to drive to the helicopter. But still, it was terrifying. And so I had to reassure her, even though inside I was also terrified. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's also, you know, the unknown things that could happen that maybe you're not expecting, which is sort of what makes the book that we uh, are going to talk about today, uh, you know, makes space travel sound even more petrifying. And so welcome to the podcast, Daniel Jorge Explain the Universe, a production of iHeartRadio, in which we explore everything that can and does happen in our universe, how things come apart, how things come together, how everything works. We talk about black holes, we talk about white holes, we talk about galaxies, we talk about particles, we talk about everything that happens in the universe. And sometimes we talk about things that happen in fictional universes. My friend and co-host Jorge can't be with us today, but I'm very happy to have Kelly, our host on these science fiction episodes joining us today. Kelly, thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me. I love every time you email me and you're like, hey, how about we read a science fiction book for work? And I'm like, this is this. My life is the best. <laughs> science fiction is so much fun to read. You know, as a scientist, you spend all of your days struggling against the boundaries of the laws of physics. It's so much fun to have creative people also contributing, you know, thinking about other ways universes could be what the laws of physics might be or setting stories in our universe and figuring out like how to solve problems. I just love the connection between the creative creativity of writing science fiction and the creativity of actually exploring our universe. Yeah. And, and this book was particularly exciting because it's set almost essentially in our time exactly. And the world is very similar to our world. And so it's interesting to think about, well, if just a few things were different, what might our world be like? And so, yeah, it's, it's a really fun book to think about. Yeah, I love when science fiction tells us about how we could live, how we might live and also explores like, you know, the consequences of technology and how it can affect and change people's lives. You know, we can like lift up one nation to make it more powerful. It can uh, give access to people who were excluded from the mainstream. Technology really can completely revolutionize our society. And I love seeing science fiction writers try to anticipate that and to explore that. And that's absolutely what this book does. And what, what book did we read for today's episode, Daniel? <laughs> and so on today's episode, we're going to be talking about... The Science Fiction Universe of Orbital Cloud by Taiyo Fuji. This is a really fun book that takes place in the near future. Kelly and I both read this book and encourage you to pick it up. It's a lot of fun and it's a really impressive display of like the technical mastery of the author. It's like very detailed, very specific. A lot of the plot points really rely on like understanding the science and how things actually work. But I feel like often when you get a book that's really good about the science, sometimes you don't get characters that are good also. There's like, 
you know, you can be good at the engineering, but maybe you're not also good at describing people. And this book, I think, does a really nice job of having like an interesting plot, interesting characters and solid science. I was personally very impressed with his breadth. I was curious what your thoughts were about it, especially like the space international law and all the treaties and the intrigue and all that stuff. But first, let's tell our listeners a little bit about what this book is about. It was published originally in Japanese and then translated a few years later. And in my mind, it's something like a space spy techno thriller. You know, you have countries battling against each other in space, but, you know, it's not like a shooting war. It's more like, you know, information and maneuvering. I got some sort of like Hunt for Red October vibes. You know, it's like political and there's espionage and all sorts of stuff. How did you see the book? Well, so first of all, I should admit that I've never seen Hunt for Red October and I regret that like every couple months because I feel like it gets referenced all the time. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I got to watch that. But yeah, no, I, I got those vibes, too. Although although I'll say that it like, yes, there was the espionage web aspect of it. But, you know, there were also these very real weapons that were up in space, too. And so, yeah, had some of that also. But I'll, I'll watch Hunt for Red October so that next time it gets brought up, I'm on the ball. I don't know how you can exist in the nerddom without having seen that movie. When I've spent two years studying Russian and I'm interested in Soviet history. And uh, so it comes up a lot because it's us versus the Soviets in that, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, like every movie back then. So what is this book about? It takes place over a few days in 2020, and it involves a lot of sort of amateur characters, people watching the sky. There's a guy who runs a meteor predicting website who's following something in space and notices something strange happening in the trajectory of an object that was launched by North Korea. So it's a lot of different characters all around the world sort of seeing things happening in space and trying to put together what's going on. Yeah, and they all actually, for the most part, work together, which I hope is what would happen, but I'm not always so optimistic. <laughs> There's also a rich dude who is doing a stunt trip to his orbital hotel, and he's bringing his daughter with him. And like, you know, you read it for the first time, or you start reading the book, and you think to yourself, oh, is this supposed to be Elon Musk? And then it turns out he made his millions from a company that is very clearly meant to be PayPal in fiction, mm -hmm. or in this fictional universe. And you're like, okay, I get it. This is definitely supposed to be Elon Musk. <laughs> So there's an Elon Musk character who is going to space in his orbital hotel for the first time and has a big stunt to, like, I guess, show how safe it is. He takes his daughter with him. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But then it turns out maybe space isn't so safe because these amateurs watching the sky notice that this object that North Korea launched has a sort of strange trajectory. It's not really following like your typical gravitational trajectory. It's sort of maneuvering in space in a way that surprises everybody. And suddenly people panic, like, hold on, is this some sort of new weapon? Have the North Koreans developed this thing called the rod from God that can, you know, drop payloads from space? Or maybe they're like targeting this orbital hotel that the Elon Musk character has built. So all of a sudden there's this sort of change in the power balance in space. People think, oh, this is new technology. Maybe now we are no longer safe. Whereas a moment ago, we thought of ourselves as safe. I think that's really interesting how they explores the sort of power dynamics and how very quickly things can change with new technology. And absolutely, if some country not only got the power to knock out you know, the International Space Station, the Chinese Space Station that's up there, any tourist stuff, but also all of our satellites that we use for GPS or communication or something. That would be an incredible power if they were willing to wield it, you know, for evil purposes. And, and it would, of course, break all sorts of international law. But yes, you could certainly cripple a country like the U.S. if you suddenly took out all of our uh, satellites. We'd be in trouble. And so now that we've got you all 
petrified of the idea that your cell phone's <laughs> not going to work anymore or your credit card. How plausible is the science here, Daniel? Could something like this happen? So this is a really fun book because, wow, did the author do their homework? Oh my gosh, it's so clear that it was really important to him that every element of this book be plausible. Yeah, I think he wanted the characters to be really living within the confines of science. And, you know, his background is he is an engineer. And so I think he's trying to share sort of that joy of solving puzzles within these rules. You know, you can't just break the rules and say, I'm going to magic away this problem. And so in the book, the characters can't magic away stuff. So there's a lot of really interesting science in this book it includes like computer science and space technology and physics. One of the espionage bits in the story involves changing how automatic translation engines will translate like Korean into English so that it changes what people hear when they're watching a speech. So you're watching a speech by the dictator of North Korea, for example, and you're relying on this automatic translation and you can manipulate what people hear if you manipulate also these translation engines. And I thought that was really fascinating, a very clever and sort of troubling idea. I agree. It was both petrifying and clever and troubling. And has anything like this ever happened before? Or did he come up with this? It's a totally plausible idea because the way a lot of these translation engines work is they just sort of like scrape the web for information. You want to know how to translate between English and Korean. You don't like sit down with a bunch of experts who teach your computer how to do it. You just get a bunch of examples and you just learn the mapping. So you need pages that are written in one language and in the other language and the computer learns between them. And so just as ChatGPT is learning from the web, they just like scrape text from the internet. Uh, so they rely on the fact that it's written by humans and it's correct. And then they learn that mapping. And so if you pollute that sample, if you insert a bunch of new stuff into the web that has incorrect translations that you want to insert into like English Korean translators, then that's totally possible. You would absolutely do that because the assumption they're making when they're doing this training is that all the human text out there is basically correct. None of it's like maliciously, incorrectly written. And there actually is a sort of hilarious and tragic example of incorrect text being pumped into, you know, the sort of textosphere, which is a few years ago, they discovered that there was one guy writing a bunch of articles in the Scots language, right? So, you know, Scottish people, part of the UK, you know, speak English, obviously, but they also have their local dialect Scots, which is related to English, but not identical. And there was some American teenager, probably this kid watched too many Austin Powers movies in which there's, you know, some Scottish characters, etc. And he just thought, oh, I'm going to write a bunch of articles in Wikipedia in the Scots language, but he didn't know Scots. And so he just wrote them sort of as like English written in a Scottish accent. But he wrote like gibberish and nonsense and just like made up a bunch of stuff. Oh, my gosh. But and so like how many how many articles did he write? Like how committed was he to this endeavor? <laughs> For being something that was not malicious, it was really impressively deep. He wrote 23,000 articles, about a third of the entire Scots Wikipedia at the time was created by this one guy who didn't speak Scots. He was just no. like writing in a joking accent. This is why teenagers should not be allowed to have free time. Like <laughs> they don't do good things with it. There was an interview with a professor who's like an expert in the Scots language. And he said, quote, this is going to sound incredibly hyperbolic and hysterical, but but I think this person has possibly done more damage to the Scots language than anyone else in history. Oh, my gosh. No. Worse than Mel. What was it? Mel Gibson. And didn't he do a. <laughs> 
<laughs> Worse than all those English kings that's killed all those Scottish people and suppressed oh Scottish gosh. culture. Anyway, the point is that you can actually pollute what's out there. If you now go and write a translator that goes from English to Scots, you're probably picking up a lot of this baloney that this American teenager created. And so now it's a lot harder to learn that translation. So this is a totally plausible. It's really happened in our world that you can pollute the sort of ocean of information from which AI is learning to connect languages. So what you're saying is that North Korea is going to hire this teenager and we're all going to be in a lot of trouble. And I think after the break, we should talk about the weapon that the North Koreans were wielding in this book. So let's take a quick break. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. How do you feel about eating plastic? If you went to a restaurant and saw plastic on the menu, would you order it? Well, turns out that we're all eating and drinking roughly a credit card's worth of plastic every week. Yep, that's right. The products we're using every day are ultimately contaminating our water supply, generating hundreds of microplastics that we end up ingesting. Yuck. Well, what can we do about it? Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet with the same powerful clean you're used to. It's not complicated. Refillable cleaning products without sacrificing on design. Their products have a beautiful, cohesive style that looks great on your counter. My family got the sampler pack and it already smelled great when we opened the box. Everything works super well, stuff gets really clean and it's all super easy to use. So it's no extra hassle in our lives and we feel great knowing we're generating less plastic waste. Blue Land has a special offer for listeners. Right now, get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash universe. You won't want to miss this. Blueland.com slash universe for 15% off. That's blueland.com slash universe to get 15% off. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. 
From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. All right, so there's a corruption of information and there's also actually these weapons that are going into space. So Daniel, tell us about these weapons. So in the book, they have this weapon, they call it the Rod from God, which is a really fun name for a weapon, but it's terrifying, right? The idea is to take a big, heavy object, launch it into space, and then drop it on someone. And this is essentially just taking advantage of the kinetic energy. You have something really high up in the gravitational well, and it falls to Earth, and as it falls down, it speeds up, it gains a lot of kinetic energy, and when it impacts, it's like a meteor. You know, it's the reason why the dinosaurs were wiped out. There wasn't a nuclear weapon. Nobody blew up a fusion bomb. It's just a massive amount of energy delivered to the Earth's surface, which doesn't take high technology. As long as you can get something heavy up really far above the Earth and then drop it into the gravitational well, by the time it hits the planet, it can be devastating. Yeah, so I, I did a little bit of research on these Rod from God proposals when we were working on our space book, and there are some pretty good arguments against not using them. Like one, you know, the fact that it's heavy is super important, which is also going to make it super expensive because every pound you send into space is is still pretty pricey these days. Also, it's sort of hard to direct this kind of weapon relative to like, you know, a, a missile that you can, in some cases, maybe turn or point. And so it needs to be almost always over a potential target at all times. And then finally, this weapon, you know, so as you mentioned, like, asteroids were pretty bad for the dinosaurs. Uh, They were also bad for everyone because they created this like cloud that impacted the climate. And so this is a kind of weapon that can cause problems for people who aren't necessarily the target, but still a very scary weapon. And I guess the final argument that usually goes against these things is that you can do all of these things with weapons we already have from Earth. So why spend the money to send it up into space? And then you have to worry about maintaining this weapon. But still, yes, so Rod from God comes up in sci-fi. I actually I think the idea came from a sci-fi novel first and then got explored by the U.S. Air Force. And to be honest, I didn't know that the Air Force's Project Thor had gotten as much attention as it did. I ended up doing a little research after reading your your outline. Yeah, this is something the Air Force has actually thought about. They're like, read about it in a science fiction novel, they're like, is that possible? And so they explored the idea of dropping basically a tungsten telephone pole from space. And, you know, this thing would reach like Mach 10 and it would have the yield of a nuclear weapon without any fallout. So from that perspective, it's like less dangerous. You know, you worry about like nuking other countries and then the fallout drifting across the ocean or whatever. In this case, there is no radioactive fallout. But as you say, it's super expensive. They calculated it would cost like $230 million per shot. Oh my gosh. Because, you know, Tungsten is expensive. The thing that makes it powerful is also the thing that makes it heavy. And so that's pretty tricky. I think you'd have to like mine the tungsten in space to make this thing more effective. But hey, I'm not here giving the Air Force, you know, good ideas for futuristic weapons. (laughs) Well, I'm not too worried. That's pretty far off in the future, I think. (laughs) Being able to mine that much tungsten and uh, 
use it for weapons. But then they also have this other interesting technology in the book, which are anti-satellite weapons. So if you have now things in space that can attack you, you want to have ways to defend yourselves. And so in the book, there's a long thread at NORAD where they're talking about like, what could we do to attack a satellite to help defend ourselves? And it refers to this technology, this ASM-140, this anti-satellite missile, essentially shooting a missile from Earth into space to attack a satellite. So what do you know about anti-satellite technology in our universe in reality, Kelly? Well, so I guess this is one of the the ways that the rod from God actually is a good weapon. Like if you, it's pretty hard to mess up a giant slug of tungsten. And so like if you are sending it towards Earth and someone shoots it, probably that giant slug of tungsten is still coming towards you. But in terms of actually shooting at like, you know, like a GPS satellite or something. This is something that a number of countries have done already from the ground. China, the US, Russia, and India have all shot their own satellites out of the sky just to show that they can so that other people know that they have that power. I think that in all of those cases, it was from the ground shooting to space as opposed to the method that's used uh, in this book where you climb on an airplane and then the airplane shoots at the weapon. I could be wrong about that. But anyway, so anti-satellite weapons are a thing that exists right now. In the time between when his book was published and when it came out, Russia shot down one of their satellites and it got some news because the ISS folks had to jump to their return vehicle because there was some concern that the debris caused by the satellite getting blown up was going to hit the ISS and puncture it and expose everyone to the vacuum of space. Russia, of course, claimed that everybody was making a big deal over nothing and it was nowhere near the ISS. But but anyway, these, so these sorts of weapons are real. Yeah. And that's really the, the downside of it is that if we have like a war, where we're shooting each other's satellites, we could fill the near space environment with garbage and we could make it impossible for anybody to get off planet. We have an episode about space junk and this concern that as soon as you have enough space junk, it becomes exponential and banging into itself and destroying all the satellites. And then space is just filled with junk and you can't launch anything safely, which would be terrible in lots of ways. Yeah. Kessler syndrome. We want to avoid that for sure. Exactly. I think there was actually a program in the Air Force. It's called ASM-135, where they were going to launch a missile from an F-15 doing this crazy supersonic climb. I was reading about how they did test it in 1985 and destroyed a solar observation satellite. And the junk still was floating around for 20 years. They track each piece of junk after this explosion. And the last piece deorbited in 2004. So it's not like space cleans itself up very quickly either. Like you make a mistake, it could be decades before we could launch something into space again. So then I was wrong. There has been, they have tested this from a plane shooting the satellite mm -hmm. thing before. So that's super mm -hmm. interesting. And I think the country that got the most flack for this test was China because they shot a satellite that was still at a sort of higher orbit. And so all the junk it created stayed up there for much longer. Most people, when they shoot down their satellites, it's much lower. So the junk is going to deorbit sooner. And I think the international community went after China, whereas they usually don't make a huge fuss about this stuff uh, because they had sort of polluted the space environment so much. But anyway, okay, so the that's been tested. Cool. <laughs> cool, scary, I'm not sure, yeah. 
One of the key technologies in this book, the thing that allows the North Koreans to sort of like steer this out and manipulate this rocket in orbit without having propulsion on it, is this idea of a space tether. The sort of central plot device in the book is that they're watching this North Korean satellite and they're expecting it to just be tumbling, but then it's maneuvering and they're wondering like, how did they do that? And so this space tether technology is what allows the North Koreans in the book, having stolen it from the Iranians, to sort of maneuver this object in orbit and, you know, maybe target areas with their rod from God. So how do these tethers work? So these space tethers are super fascinating. Again, the author has been like very diligent because there is real physics here. Like you can actually use these things to manipulate the path of things in orbit. Especially a space tether is just a long wire. You have an object in space and you have a very, very long wire attached to it. If you're moving through a magnetic field, then you can take advantage of the Lorentz force and you can either turn your motion into electrical energy. You can like become a generator by turning the motion of your wire through a magnetic field into current in the wire. So you can like generate power. Or if you can dump power into the wire, if you can create current on the wire, then you get a force between the wire and the magnetic field. And you can use that essentially to steer. So you get something like an electronic rudder where you can control your motion through the magnetic field and basically position your satellite anywhere you want it, at least steer it somewhere. So could we actually have this and why don't we? Or should we let the author explain that later in the interview? This is totally plausible. The physics is solid. You know, it's all just the Lorentz force. You're either turning kinetic energy into electrical energy or electrical energy into kinetic energy. Both of those actually work. And people have explored this. NASA had a mission in 2002 called the ProSEDS mission, which was going to have a 15 kilometer tether attached to an object that was going to explore like electrodynamic propulsion. And the advantage again here is that you don't need propellant. You know, most of the time when you're maneuvering in space, you have to throw some mass off your ship. You want to change direction, you've got to push away by throwing something in the other direction to conserve momentum. And so this would allow you essentially to swim through the magnetic field indefinitely because you will never run out of propellant. So this is a very cool idea, totally plausible. My one question when I was reading about this was whether the magnetic field of the Earth really was strong enough to give the effects in the book. But we asked the author about it and he gave us a very fun answer about it when we talked to him. All right. And so enough of me and Kelly talking about this book that we didn't write. We were very excited to talk to the author about how he wrote such a fun book with so many interesting characters and so much cool space technology and space dynamics and space law and space politics. And we we're very happy that the author was willing to join us. So here's our interview with Tayo Fuji. So it's my great pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Mr. Tayo Fuji, author of Orbital Cloud. Tayo, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me to the podcast. I'm very glad to be talking about the Optical Cloud. We're glad to have you here. We loved it. And we'd love to hear about how you got into writing science fiction. What was your path to becoming a successful science fiction author? I was a computer software engineer under especially developing the computer graphics software for the commercial usage. Then in the 1911, May uh, 1911, March 11th, we caught the huge earthquake in Japan. On that time, then 10,000 people had gone away at, by tsunami. We know that. But the two days after, the Fukushima nuclear power plant got the 
boomed, exploded. The all the news source and media is changes to their the mentioning about the tsunami disaster, but also they turn to the reporting the radioactive dangerousness. On this timing, safety, safety, but the news media kept uh, claiming that dangerous, uh, the radioactive is dangerous and we cannot live there. I got angry and I was thinking about how to show that we can stand in front of the technology or disaster or the natural, natural disaster or the climate change or another many things. Then, but I was only one engineer, I'm not scientist. I was not famous for the talking about the disaster, nuclear disaster. Then I started to write science fiction. The fiction is the most low cost way to the sending the message to <laughs> somebody. Then I wrote the first science fiction story about the demagogue killing people. I sold uh, 10,000 copies of <laughs> ebook on the two months or so. <laughs> I became the every many writer, editor and my publisher editor know my work. Then uh, I, uh, then the, Hayakawa, the publisher Hayakawa, the, the Japanese uh, science fiction dedicated publisher, they offered me to the publishing the Jimapa to be commercial publisher. Then I, uh, agreed and rewriting it and changing my job to the engineer employee to their independent writer. That is such an interesting path. And so I'm wondering, you were inspired by an event that happened in, you know, modern times. Is that what motivated you to write a book that could be happening in the very near future as opposed to like thousands of years in the future? Were you a science fiction fan before that? Yes, I was science fiction, big science fiction fan. I already have uh, 800 books on my shelf, books on my shelf and uh, I kept uh, James P. Hogan and uh, Asimov and uh, other writers. And uh, especially I love the work of the Paolo Bacigalpi, the Wind Up Girl. Well, tell us about how you came up with this story. There's so many fascinating interconnected pieces to it. Did you come up with sort of the story first and then figure out how the technology worked? Or are you more fascinated by the technological elements and then figured out a story you could tell with them? I start the story from there. I started to write a novel, uh, science fiction from the story. Who do what is there? My, either, uh, my either story starting point. And about orbital cloud and talking, uh, speaking about orbital cloud, then the web engineer saves the world is a, <laughs> a story, story is called the core. <laughs> then how I think and when I think also, then, uh, then when the food does what also. <laughs> I was impressed by how much different knowledge you had of things so like international law, different space agencies in different countries and how they work. And the knowledge was expansive and beyond just what you would expect from your experience as an engineer. So how long did it take you to get all of that additional information and how did you go about learning all of those those additional pieces? I researched through the three or four months about but the internet, the, the, the method is joining onto the hackathon, the hacker marathon. NASA started the hackathon of the space updaters. 
disclosed all the data by the Obama governance, the NASA started to the, let the engineers to the make the something, <laughs> develop the something from uh, with using NASA data, space data. Then I joining it. Then there I spend the two days at the Tokyo University and making the friend and <laughs> I under uh, my uh, I joined uh, and with my friend. Then, then my friend is uh, more the protagonist model of the orbital cloud. I met many people. <laughs> Some people is uh, appearing in this book. <laughs> Do you have a friend like Kazumi who could like, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sure I pronounced the name wrong, but who could like imagine orbital trajectories in his head? The, during the hackathon, I tried to the, make it the, the positioning of the ISS. Then the, we, we, uh, we agreed that if we track the two weeks, the uh, ISS orbital elements, uh, we can the prejudice of the positioning in the one hour, the accuracy with in the brain uh, calculation. Wow, awesome. that's some real research. And uh, the story about Isana is very interesting. He is uh, uh, my friend, uh, from friend from the university, they're a very long friend, and he is, uh, he made a unique program. And he displayed the IS position of the ISS on the Google map. Then, Everybody can see the, where is ISS on the square. On the square. Then uh, I love that program, very small program. And on that years, Google Maps API was free. <laughs> it's a very important thing. <laughs> then we love that. So we love that program. Then many the amateur uses the program. And uh, yeah. And uh, one day, the Ethan phones that. NASA use it <laughs> <laughs> on the space shuttle mission. The, he watched the NASA TV and the space shuttle mission. The on the bigger, largest console, the NASA displayed the, his app on the biggest screen <laughs> and sharing the position. <laughs> wow! <laughs> and uh, yeah, iPhone. I I know that the, under after that thing, the, he was invited. To, uh, Space Shuttle launching mission to NASA. Then he watched <laughs> he watched the launching from the the first prize seat. <laughs> then this story is uh, the basis of the and one of the big base of the orbital cloud. All right, we have lots more questions for Tayo, but first we have to take a quick break. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 
only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On average, it takes about 30 days for a person to break their New Year's resolution. So if saving money was on your 2024 list, your odds aren't looking that great. Luckily, I have a 100% guaranteed way to save you money this year. Just switch to Mint Mobile. Right now, Mint Mobile has wireless plans starting at $15 a month. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Choose from a 3, 6, or 12-month plans and say goodbye to a monthly phone bill. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying for one or a family. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep the same phone number along with your existing contacts. Switch to Mint Mobile and get your first three months of premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door free, go to mintmobile.com universe. That's mintmobile.com universe. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com universe. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Okay, we're back and we're talking to Taiyo Fuji, the author of Orbital Cloud, about how he wrote such a fascinating and complicated but compelling novel. I really liked how in your story, a lot of the contributions to solving the puzzle come from people who are amateurs and they don't work for NASA or the space agency. You know, maybe they're amateurs, but wealthy or they're professionals, but they're underfunded. Is it important to you in our real world that everybody can contribute to cutting edge science and space exploration with whatever skills they have? My writing year was 2012 or 2013. That those years, the SpaceX had not succeeded yet. Then I think the amateur can uh, help the world better. So you mentioned that you were researching and writing in 2012. So in the decades since you wrote the book, what about the trajectory of the space industry has surprised you or disappointed you? Are we about where you expected we would be by now or are we falling short? I, the, the, well, limiting on the space development, the uh, commercial and the 
non-governmental space development, it gets succeeded rather than my imagining writing of the orbital cloud. Of course, the Ronnie Smack, the space uh, developer on the story, models Elon Musk, and, but Musk followed very closely to imagination. His uh, SpaceX and, uh, and uh, starting system is uh, very similar uh, for my uh, story. My imagination was touched by the Elon Musk. <laughs> and another challenge is uh, keeping. Then the space development is better than my expected. And But the bad thing was the world tension of the geopolitical situation is harder than I thought, than I predict. And if given the opportunity, would you like to travel to space personally? If Elon Musk offered you a seat <laughs> on one of his flights? Yeah! I think the Musk show that it is possible than the many follower works and better, I think. Yeah, I'm excited by companies like Rocket Lab too. I know they're not bringing people to space, but they're doing a good job of lowering the costs and stuff. So your book was translated into English. Did you work with the translator or have you read the translated version? What what was that process like? Uh, the, the translation was a very standard process. The publisher, uh, the publisher, Haika Soru, the San Francisco publisher, the selected the translator. The, the translator is a pair translation. And then this is the uh, Timothy Silver is a group name of the two translators. <laughs> then they are living in Japan. Then after translation was almost finished, the two of them asked me to the accuracy, uh, question about accuracy with her. But it, the connect, uh, communication was via the publisher, Haikaso, not the direction to me. Then the, I only review <laughs> the translation in English there, but I was so excited. <laughs> and, uh, when right and uh, during the uh, writing the Orbital Cloud uh, in Japanese edition, there, I imagine that, uh, uh, of course, the many characters speaks English <laughs> in Japanese edition, or, of course, then, but there, I write in Japanese. But I imagine that how they say it in real, <laughs> in English, then I was so excited to read in the uh, English edition and with the real English ones. <laughs> I was so excited. And uh, the translation is very accurate, very similar to uh, my, the Japanese one. Every paragraph is not uh, removed. The, no one is added. Wonderful. Well, I'm glad that it's so accurate. Uh, Kelly and I have both written books that have been translated into languages we can't read. And I wonder sometimes if my bad jokes work in Turkish, you know, or in Hungarian, but I'll never know. Speaking of accuracy, something about the book really impressed me is that you have all these characters sort of fighting against the rules of science, sort of struggling against nature. You know, how do we solve this problem? And every time they find a solution, it falls within science. You're never inventing new kinds of science. Is it important to you that the science in your book be plausible, essentially that your story take place in our universe? You never like make up new laws of physics. Yeah. The only white on one thing that I had told a lie about this book, physics. And the one thing is the strongness of the magnetic field of the earth. Then uh, 
I calculated is a thousand times the stronger than the actual one. <laughs> In order to the moving the things quickly, <laughs> yeah, because uh, the uh, electrodynamics uh, power is very small. The one thing of the physics lie is the magnetic strength, strongest of the magnetic field. And the second one is the clock, computer clock. I set the atomic clock on the cellophane-based circuit, but the atomic clock is not the... One of my friends, science fiction writer, say that. <laughs> you should set the solar cell on the tether. <laughs> then then the, even if the, even it cannot be there, the making the enough power, but also the, the fictional uh, accuracy was held. <laughs> Everybody cannot stand or claim you that you making you are talking and you are you are writing the eternal machine. This you can correct in the second edition. There you go. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and when the when the movie. <laughs> That's right. That's right. They'll have solar sails in the movie. Yeah. When somebody says the movie. <laughs> yeah. It's, so one of the themes in the book is how space technology and, you know, the satellites that we have in orbit are really helpful for the developed countries that have them and that this contributes to power imbalances. What do you see as the current state of things? And do you see any hope that the developing countries will be able to catch up and benefit from space technologies as much as we do in developed countries without like something catastrophic happening? Yeah, uh, the catastrophic might not be happen because there are too much prayers is uh, they are launching the things to the orbit. Then there are many, the thousand eyes is watching the spaces um, every time, every second. And uh, already the 4,000 satellites by one company <laughs> starting system is uh, covering uh, us and they, the starting system guys are watching the uh, orbit every second, every, of course. And uh, the China already launched the two space stations, two space stations, and under, and they they often launching the project to their uh, their Tengu second, and the North Korea already launching the many things to their there, and another country is starting to the launching the many things. Then the increasing of the player makes to the watching. By each uh, watching each others, then and that makes a collapsing or the big uh, project for the, the the big tyrant country may not be appear because there are too many uh, players is working on the space basically, and the challenge of the SpaceX the let our the past uh, uh, see to the sky at least. Then that makes the interesting is kept on the, uh, our orbit. Then uh, I think the, the collapsing thing may not occur from the space, but also from the ground, I think. Wonderful. Thank you again very much for joining us on the podcast today and talking to us about your book and congratulations on it. So I forgot to tell you that when the uh, Optar, uh, the, about Optar Cloud, then Optar Cloud sets the... Uh, the date of the 2020. Then, why I said this year? 
is because their moon is not shown in Christmas. It's a new moon date. <laughs> Then I was very nervous about when the people were looking about the sky. If there was a moon, I should describe the position of the moon every time. Then I searched when the new moon, and I searched there. I, I, I should set the, the date of the story, this the seven days story, the, during the new moon uh, terms. <laughs> Then I found that 2020 is the best, <laughs> just after the president was changed. Great. <laughs> Then I uh, set the year to the optical this month. I love that you used a moon phase to figure out when the book was going to be set. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so the many science fiction, the science fiction fan found that where is the moon? Or the, the, uh, yeah, on, on that time, the moon is on the, the in front of you. <laughs> you then the, everybody cannot see the meteor or the <laughs> yeah, another things. Then. then I want to remove the moon. Then I found the new moon times. Many literature writers can remove the moon easily, but science fiction cannot do it. <laughs> <laughs> When you read science fiction, do you check the science yourself? Do you think, hmm, is that accurate? Would the moon be in the sky? Are you that detailed in your reading as well? Yes, exactly. We cannot escape from the science. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, again, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. All right. So that was a super fun interview. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. And thank you, Kelly, for reading this book with me and chatting with us about it today. Thanks for having me. And thanks again for doing another one of these sci-fi episodes where I have an excuse to read a super fun book. I had a blast. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. And we encourage everybody to check out this book. It's a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, and remember that Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. 
brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 